0: welcome to the show you're back with aaron and dale on the windlands the podcast hello so what are we talking about today today
1: it's restorative justice finally yes. after we've sort of been touching on it for two weeks um, we yeah. have chris marshall who is the chair in restorative justice at Wellington, yes, Victoria, Victoria, yeah. Victoria, Victoria, Victoria University. University. Yeah, it's Wellington. Yeah, Chris's research focuses on restorative justice theory and practice and its application in society. So yeah,
0: yeah, and Chris used to be a lecturer at Lambeau College, where me and you both studied for a time. Um,
1: my, not my lecturer,
0: <laughs> <laughs> not our lecturer. No. no, no, he was he was before us. But so a few connections there. Shall we get into the show? Let's do it. Well,
2: curator Chris, it's awesome to have you on the show today.
0: Do you think you can tell listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do and what's gotten you into this space?
2: Sure. I am currently the professor of restorative justice at Victoria University. It's a position that's been around for about seven years now, six or seven years. Quite a new departure for the university, in, fact, in terms of the world, to have somebody who's dedicated entirely to promoting restorative justice. So uh, it's been a tremendously exciting journey so far. I think the restorative paradigm and the sorts of ways that it helps us to think about relationships are just hugely important. Before I took up this position, I was in the Religious Studies program at Vic for 10 years. And then before that, I taught New Testament studies at Laidlaw College. So by background, I'm actually a New Testament scholar. Mm. And it's through that work that I've become very engaged over the last thirty or so years with restorative ways of thinking and working. So the current role is a kind of the you know the apex of my life. Really, it's a chance to bring mm. things that I've believed and thought and written about to real sharp focus in, in terms of practice. Mm. Wow. that's really interesting. In, in terms of restorative justice, I mean, what is it? Yeah, good, good <laughs> question. Funnily enough, you know, New Zealand is one country where people are familiar with the term or, or increasingly familiar with the term. Internationally, you'll still get blank looks from people if you use the term. But I hear, you know, you often hear on the news that somebody has gone to restorative justice and the person doesn't feel the need to explain it. So there is a kind of sort of a subterranean consciousness of the process, but it's also a lot of misunderstanding about it. So, As with all new fields of inquiry, defining the the issue becomes very contested, very Mm. much debated. But the way I've come to define it is as follows, and I'll just read you the definition that I've come up with and work with, because it tries to put a lot of the real key ideas into a single statement. So restorative justice is a voluntary relational process where those with a personal stake in an offense or a conflict or an injustice those who have been directly affected and have a direct interest in what's happened, come together in a safe and respectful environment with the help of skilled facilitators. So it's a conversation where facilitators help them to have the the kind of kororo that they need to have. They come together to speak truthfully about what happened and what its impact has been on their lives, to clarify where accountability lies for the harms that have occurred. And, and this is a key point, to resolve together how best to promote repair and to bring about positive changes for all involved. So, I mean, I could unpack that for the next uh, three hours if you wanted, <laughs> but the, the, the key thing, I, I think, about this definition is that it points to a particular process, which is a process of assisted conversation, face-to-face conversation between people who have been caught up in a really harmful event, guided by a set of values around respect, around equality, around giving people voice, and it's geared towards a set of outcomes. And those outcomes are about how do you actually repair the harm. Not just what you do to punish the wrongdoer, but how do you repair the harm so that both people and the wider community you know, have positive changes occur. So one of the one of the simplest ways to try and get across what's really distinctive of this approach is to think of the way that by and large our justice system or our education system or you know society at large respond when an an episode of crime or an episode of harm occurs. And essentially, our justice system is set up to ask and answer four questions. First question is, what rules have been broken? Secondly, who is to blame for breaking those rules? Thirdly, what penalty do do they deserve? And fourthly, how severe should that penalty be so that others are deterred from doing wrong as well? So what laws have been broken? Who is to blame? And how do we punish them? And really, I mean, it sounds really simple, but the whole criminal justice system is essentially dedicated entirely to those four questions. Mm -hmm. A restorative justice approach comes at the issue and asks a different set of questions. It asks who has been hurt and what needs do they have? Who is responsible for causing that hurt and addressing the harm? What needs to be done to put things right again? and how can we prevent it from occurring another time? So the focus is focusing on hurt, injury, focusing on responsibility for that harm, and focusing most of all on, on repairing the harm. And that's why the term restorative is, is the adjective that's used. The former questions are about retribution, they're about you know, how do we strike back in a way that's just and proportionate. Uh, restorative justice is about what do we do to restore, particularly those who have been hurt, the victims, but also what do you do to restore the offender and what do you do to restore the community that's been harmed? Mm. So it's a quite different way of thinking about the problem. And if you think about the problem in those terms, you come up with different sorts of solutions. I know
0: know that a lot of people when you start talking about restorative justice, their first thought is, what about the victim? Um, Isn't this just letting the criminal off easy? And isn't there a risk here that the victim is going to be hurt even further in the process? What do you say to that?
2: Uh, well, a number of things. First thing to stress is that the whole process is voluntary. So nobody is forced into it. It depends upon the offender being willing to have this very challenging conversation. It depends on the victims wanting to have this conversation and feeling that they've got needs that the other person can help meet. And it depends upon the facilitators making sure that there's not going to be further risk of harm. And so the process is fundamentally intended to be safe. So if a victim is feels that they're at risk or the the facilitator feels that they're at risk of being harmed by the process and will not go ahead. That's the first thing. The second thing to say is that the whole process is driven by a concern to meet the needs of those who have been harmed. And that's predominantly the victim. They're the ones that live with the legacy of the harm. But often when you start to sort of peel back the layers, you realize that the offender has also been harmed in some way through their upbringing or through their social circumstances, and actually, I think, you know, through through the crime itself. I mean, you know, particularly crimes of violence do damage to the the violent person as well as to the victim. But the the predominant focus is is on the needs of victims. And, you know, we, we know quite a bit now about what victims need. You know, we know that they need safety. We know that they need a chance to have their voice heard. We know that they need to have their experience validated to have somebody say what you've been through is terrible. It should not have happened. We know they need a sense of vindication to be told that they didn't bring it on themselves because victims will tend to blame themselves for what's happened. And we know that they need to find some sense of value out of the thing. That they need to come to terms with the, ha- with the harm in a way that they can feel that something positive is going to come about. We know this, and those, those sorts of needs apply, you know, whether you're the victim of an earthquake, whether you're the victim of you know, mass shooting in, in a mosque, whether you're a victim of bullying at work, whether you're the victim of crime. We, we just know that when you are harmed by another person, you end up with a set of needs, and so restorative justice is driven by a, a concern to try and address those needs, to give safety, to give voice, to validate, to you know clarify where the blame lies, to repair the harm. So it's not about offenders primarily, you know, it's it's not about just restoring offenders. Now, admittedly, in the youth justice system with the family group conferencing that has largely been in its origins an attempt to rehabilitate offenders and to, to restore them to the whānau and to their communities. But restorative justice, I and mean, there has got restorative components to it for sure, but restorative justice itself is about bringing victims into the into the process and you know, trying to address their needs as best we can. And it's by no means a slap on the wrist. <laughs> you know, I mean, all of us who work in this Feel can tell you endless stories of people who have said that it'd be you know it's much easier for me to stand up in court. But I don't have to say anything, I don't have to do anything, I just have to stand there and have it done to me. Much harder for me to come face to face with the person that I've heard and to realize, you know, to realise the background background story. I mean, just one little example of this that comes to mind. When I was very new in this working in this area uh, in Auckland, I remember being involved in a a conference between a, a young guy who had been um, caught up with a, an, another man who had just been released from prison. They had met in the street and decided that they would, they would burgle a house. So they broke into the house. They uh, started stuffing their packs with uh, what they found. And just before they left, the, the car drove up the, the drive and the owners came back. And they went into the, into the room that they were pilfering stuff from. And one of the young boys, he only a young lad, 18, 19-year-old, grabbed a bottle of wine and threw it at the owner, then and got out the window and ran away. So, I mean, I, in a sense, of kind of standard burglary, but one that went wrong. When we brought these people together, one of the things that the offender found out was that the, the man who owned the house and his wife had just come back from a weekend away Knowing that that would probably be their last time together, because her husband had terminal cancer and was going to die very soon. So, out of this meeting, this this young guy had to come face to face with the fact that he hadn't just broken into a house and stolen a bottle of wine; he had actually traumatized somebody who was facing the most severe challenge in his life. And that you know that's hard to do. That's hard to that's hard to experience. And the power of that on, on both parties. It's just extraordinary. You know, it mm-hmm. helps to remove the fear from the victim because they have all sorts of questions about, why did you do this? Were you looking at my house? Were you you, know, were you in the joint? If I done anything to hurt you, will you come back? Uh, all kinds of questions that, that only this other person can answer and the person who's caused the harm has to recognize what it means to harm another person. So it's a very, it's a very demanding process and I, I don't think I've, um, I've seen young guys in particular who sort of quite relaxed about the idea of going into a conference uh, where you talk to them and offer this possibility to see them. But when they get to the, to the door, they're, they're really shaking. This is very challenging. Yeah, so it's, you know, I, I think people who say, What about the victims? It's a slap on the wrist of the wet bus ticket, often do not really know what the reality is.
0: Is it something that's possible when you think of like, like really traumatic? Crimes, you know. I mean, we're thinking terrible crimes like rape or murder or really mm. severe assault or abuse, both psychological, mm. physical, sexual. Like, is this yeah. a is this appropriate way of doing justice? Can you do it in that space? Have you seen that done?
2: Yes, yes, I have. and In fact, I, I'd go a wee bit further and say that the research shows and the experience of most of us who work in the field confirms that the more serious the harm that a person has suffered the more this kind of process is appropriate. As long as as you know, as long as people opt into it, and as and, and long as they're not compelled to do it too quickly or at a time it's not suitable. But some of the most powerful stories emerge out of people who are coming to terms with really severe harm. Um, and sexual offending mentioned rape. The two areas where I think there is most concern is, is sexual offending, such as rape, or, or particularly offending against children, and that's another whole area of complexity, but sexual offending generally, and family violence. And the reason why family violence in particular is a challenge is because the parties to the harm go on living together under the same roof often. And unless you're committed to addressing things behind the violence, not just the episode of, of the violence, you know, then you can create risk. So there are some complex areas of practice. But having said that, the people who have suffered really severe interpersonal harm, especially crimes of violence, often get the most out of this kind of process. Being said, for example, if government or governments want to invest in RJ, and they do, and New Zealand does, they ought not to invest in the low-level property crimes, they ought to invest in the severe end of the scale, because that's often where the biggest return comes, big bang for your buck.
0: Well, if you were to envision our system, if we were to reform the justice system and put re- restorative justice principles at, at the centre and the base and, and build up from there, what would that system look like for you?
2: Well, it's a, really, a really good question, Aaron, because this government is attempting to begin a process, beginning a process to reform the justice system. It's been going on now for 18 months and there's been four reports submitted to the government. One of the things that's common in all these reports, and these are reports from communities, from Māori, from victims, two common themes that emerge through it. One is the current justice system does not work. And the second is we want a system that seeks to transform, not just to punish. And that's true of victims as much as it is of communities where, you know, disadvantaged communities where where most offenders are found. They want, want a system that tries to change things on the ground. So... So it's, really, it's a really crucial question, how can we reform our system so that it's more restorative? And it's, it's a hard question to answer. And one of the, I think one of the challenges of sort of upscaling this approach and of making it more central is this voluntary nature. So it's really important that people opt into this, that, you know, that they're not having it done to them. One key restorative value is work with people. We don't do things to people. You know, not, not everybody and probably not the majority of people uh, would be prepared to go through the full restorative justice meeting. But you could do a number of things. One is you could articulate what the central goal of your justice system is. And if you were to say, we want a justice system that seeks to heal, that's our goal. We want a justice system that seeks to restore we want a justice system or put in really least controversial terms we want a justice system that repairs if we were to actually embrace that as a concept rather than we want a justice system that identifies wrongdoers and punishes them we want a justice system that attempts to repair then I think every part of the process could be could be rethought around that so when a person appears in court the question is not just is this person guilty and if they're guilty what you know what level of Penalty do we have? But is this person responsible for harm? What do they need to do to bring about repair? What I mean, what if if judges, when they um, made the decisions on sentencing, were to think about what's going to be the most reparative thing I can do? What if the money, you know, the billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars that goes into the prison system, what if even a tiny proportion of that was invested in community uh, justice centres where community members could try and resolve the harm outside the system? What if we made restorative processes evolve, uh, available at all points of the system? When the police you know, and the police are actually doing some pretty impressive stuff around this at the moment. When police are the first to get to, to come to a situation of crime or of wrongdoing, if they were empowered to think about, well, how can we resolve this in the least intrusive way? You know, how can we the least damaging way? And then restorative conferencing was part of available as part as it is with the court. Process and then in prisons and then post-release. If we, you know, if we had a lot of more options for people to have these kinds of conversations with people that they have hurt or the communities that they have rejected, then I think we'd start to have better outcomes. You know, people people often say that they want, and especially you know, in the public space, they want policies that are evidence-based. And I I think you know, what if they just said that about the the incarceration system what if you know we ran that according to what the evidence tells us well the evidence tells us that vast majority of people re-offend that families are broken up you know that people are rendered unemployable it exacerbates poverty what if we were led by that evidence uh, mm-hmm. rather than by the kind of instinctive drive to make sure that wrongdoing is penalized mm-hmm.
0: You say in your book, um, *Beyond Retribution*, that there's there's no correlation between crime rates and imprisonment, yeah. and, and you go on to say sort of our massive institutions of punishment have more to do with the for the demands of retribution than they do with our justice. Yeah. Can you can you speak to that? Because I think for, in some people's minds, there is a correlation. I mean, if we punish people, if we put them in prison, um, we're going to have less victims.
2: Yeah. Is that, is that true? true. Yeah. No, it's not true. And I mean, criminologists and sociologists have known this for generations. Most of us think, and when you think of the political rhetoric around this stuff, uh, it's always about crime rates increasing. We need to be tougher in order to get the crime rate back under control. The fact is that our crime rates in New Zealand are the lowest they've been for 30 or 40 years. I mean, there are exceptions within that broad generalization. There are some kinds of crime, uh, crimes of violence and so on. That are, have increased, but but the overall crime rate uh, in New Zealand at the time when we were we were ramping up a punitive system, the crime rate was decreasing. So the prison rates are going up and the crime rate was going down. So you know why is that? A lot of it is to do with knee-jerk reactions to particularly nasty crimes, and you know we've seen this around around the world. We, we, classic examples in New, New Zealand, a particularly nasty, violent crime, when you know things have, have not gone well, there is a public outcry to do something about it, and politicians are on the bang bang. What do they do about it? They try to increase the penalties, um, rather than saying that this is just the exception, not the norm. And I, I think my criticism with our whole way of doing justice is that it's all geared towards the extreme end. And the vast majority of crimes are not of that ex- that severity, but they get dragged, like dragged along by responses to the more, uh, to the more brutal and more well, this is the sort of stuff that gets on the front page of the newspaper, the, the news headlines, and people's reactions to that uh, cause the whole system to start to be dragged in a more punitive direction, and so our, you know, in New Zealand, our rates of imprisonment. You know, have have more than doubled over the last ten years. Now we have one of the highest rates of incarceration in the in the Western world, and it's said that Maori are the most incarcerated race in the world. But that's not because we've had a huge increase of crime at all. It's, it's often driven by political choices and by media panic.
0: Mm. So and so, why is that? So Māori are highly overrepresented in incarceration rates. I mean, that's a trend in terms of Indigenous peoples across yeah, the globe. Yeah. What's the correlation there? I mean, is it just that Māori are worse offenders than everyone else, or is no. it something deeper? More, what,
2: yeah, what's happening? Well, you know, I just read this morning actually. Aristotle apparently said that poverty is the mother of crime. He said that uh, two and a half thousand years ago. I mean, to the extent that Maori and Pacific peoples in particular are overrepresented in disadvantage and in poverty is the extent to which they are more represented in criminal justice statistics. There is also, I think, an undeniable racial bias in the way the system works. And I think you know the statistics really show that because young Maori men who are arrested are more likely to go to jail than young Pākehā men arrested for the same sorts of crime. And whether that's conscious or unconscious bias can be debated, but it's certainly there. There's the, it, there's the, the impact of colonisation and the loss of a sense of investment in society. So there you are know, a lot of complex figures, but it's not because they're... Just, they're genetically more inclined to offend at all. I mean, crime is the symptom of something else. It's not usually the symptom of individual wickedness. And there are wicked people out there. But the research shows us that put normal, good, law abiding people in stressful circumstances, and you'll get the same results as you see when people are under stress because of social circumstance.
0: Mm. What do you then say or, or think of a society that has neglected the needs of the poor, and especially in our in our indigenous communities, yet pushes really strongly for
2: harsh punitive punishments? Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think around that? Well, yeah, I guess I'm part of the you know I'm part of the privileged sector of society, and so you know, maybe I shouldn't say anything. But I think if I were a biblical prophet the Old Testament prophet, I think I would say a lot of very harsh things because I think you're right that those who are beneficiaries of the way society is at the moment have enabled the exercise of power by the authorities and by our system to be used in a way that maintains their own power and well, persecutors may be too strong a word, but continues to oppress those who are the losers in the society. So, you know, I, I hope, maybe the coronavirus thing is giving us a little bit more cause for hope, but I, we, we really, in our society, have to recognise that entrenched inequality is bad for everybody. And unless we do something to address that, punitive, oppressive, coercive measures are not going to achieve the kind of society we all want to have, which is one where people feel safe and, and valued and respected. You know, so really there is a social justice question that needs to be answered before we try to answer the criminal justice question. And if we try to answer the criminal justice question without addressing the social justice question, we'll, we'll just end up with more of the same.
0: There's a narrative in
2: leading up to this election, which is
0: very much trying to push back onto, I guess, our Christian heritage and, uh, and tying that to the law and order narrative, saying, you know, that that is part of our, um, our history. Now you you put a very different vision of I guess the Christian story when you paint your your theology around restorative justice. How do you see I guess this other narrative, and how does it contrast with I guess the dominant narrative that seems to be very deeply ingrained in our mindsets around what it means to to do justice?
2: And yeah, yeah, wow, it's a big it's a big question. I mean, you have read beyond retribution, which is uh, well done, <laughs> yeah. But you may remember there when I look. When I began sort of researching that book, the question I was asked to speak on at a conference was, "What does the New Testament have to say about crime and punishment?" And at that stage, my immediate response in my head was, "Well, it doesn't have anything to say about it. You know, it talks about it talks about sin and it talks about salvation. It doesn't talk about crime. It doesn't talk about a criminal justice system." And so I started working on this, and Beyond Retribution was the result. And one of the things I say in the early chapters. Is that what the New Testament New Testament does speak about all the big issues, all the big ingredients of a criminal justice system? It speaks about wrongdoing, it speaks about punishment, it speaks about the police, it speaks about law, it speaks all the ingredients are certainly there. So I was missing and most Christians I think miss this material that's actually there. But one of the things I say at the beginning is that the New Testament offers us. The criminal justice system, which was largely the Roman, you know, the system that Rome had imposed on, on its empire, the New Testament reflects it from the underside. It reflects what it means to be the victim of state oppression. And I think what's happened since then is that the, the Christian church has become caught up with the mainstream and with the elite, and it's, it's become, in a sense, controlled by the, by the view of control society And so it's then been used to justify the oppression of others because the church moved from the margins to the center. And I think the kind of I think if we were to go back to the Jesuit the to the biblical sources and ask, well, what do they mean by justice? When they speak about the justice of God, which they believed they had experienced in a fresh way, what are they talking about? What was that what was that justice? About and when you start doing that, it's a very, very exciting journey. You realise that the very notion of justice, when it's applied to God and to and to God's community, is about redemption and restoration. It's not about punishment. Now, there's punishment there. I mean, the material is complex and diverse, as you'd expect it to be, but it is possible to identify a kind of undergirding theme or direction of the material, which trends towards the redemption and the healing of those who have been hurt. And the story of Christ and the cross and the teaching of Jesus is full of this sort of stuff. And so I think the church is being mobilized, or the voice of the church, or the voice of Christian conservative theology being mobilized to justify an unjust system is tragedy. I mm. think. It's a, it's a tragedy for society because they have domesticated the radical, subversive nature of Christian faith. It's a tragedy for the church because it starts to simply identify Christianity with kind of otherworldly stuff rather than with genuine social transformation. And it's a tragedy for anybody who, who you know, wants to understand this stuff in light of the story of, of the gospel. So for me, you know, I discovered restorative justice. Uh, At the time when I was discovering what the Bible has to say about justice, I was expressly looking at that. Mm -hmm. And it was like a hand in a glove. I thought uh, that they fit perfectly. And Restorative Justice emerged actually from experiments by Christian community activists about how can you bring peace to circumstances of violence. And the most violent institution in our society is the modern prison. It's the criminal justice system. Arguably, you could argue that the family home is the most violent institution in society. We have a dreadful problem of family violence in this country, but these are sites of violence and, and harm. And these early Christian activists were saying, well, you know, what we know about the peace of God, what we know about the justice for God, what we know about the teaching of Jesus and the example of Jesus, invites us to work for peace and change in these situations of violence. And out of that came, you know, came restorative justice. So I see Restorative Justice as, though it's a very diverse field and it's multi-faith and it's multi-ethnic, multi-cultural, international field. And it's now you know, enriched by whole streams of scholarship and practice. It's not an explicitly Christian movement anymore, but I see it as a practical realization of the very heart of my faith mm. in Christ and the work of God in the world.
0: So we're moving out of lockdown and and I think we're starting to see the election on the horizon. And there's a lot of political groups that are ramping up the law and order rhetoric. And it's almost as the government has sort of started to talk about reforming the justice system, there's been some very strong voices in our society, both from conservative groups to political parties, both within the government and outside, that really want to push this other, you know, the punitive, retributive narrative around what justice is. Yeah. I mean, what's what's the way forward? Because it seems like that gets a lot of support. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, hey, okay, we need to change something, how can you participate in that?
2: Yeah. I must say, Aaron, that I am very disappointed with some of our politicians who are going back to the law and order kind of rhetoric because we've done that. We've done that for 15 years or more and the results have been tragic. And it just seems to me either uninformed or cynical for opposition, opposition politicians to oppose the, the government's con, uh, commitment to reform by beating that drum again. It's just horrifying. If other groups are beating that drum as well, then I, th- I think you just have to beat a different June. And, and, I, and I guess I'm confident that if you can talk to people who claim to be concerned about these issues and help them to understand Both the harm that is done and the violence that is done by relying on punishment and revenge and retribution as the sole response we have, and to understand what more humane and dialogical and restorative approaches are able to achieve, then I think, you know, we we can help to (laughs) turn the tide a bit. And I'm kind of encouraged by the level of community support for the government's. I think the government. The government has set itself a huge task, and I think it's going to prove much more difficult than perhaps they realised. But I'm very I'm very encouraged by the level of commitment to this. They are really talking about fundamental change. And as long as we can keep those people, give them more time to do it, then there is some possibility. If we have a change of government and if the law and order thing is, uh, is seen as a way of marking the difference when you administration, then, yeah, I'd be very un- unhappy. Because I think one of the things that the taputia, the, the sort of reform packages discovered, is that when you go to communities and you ask them about what they want, maybe not the people who ring, talk back radio, you know, maybe not the sort of the, the rednecks amongst the media and so on, but when you talk to the people who have a personal stake in this and who are, whose communities have been personally harmed by it, then they're crying out for a system that is more healing and more restorative. And all those four reports, including the one from the victim, and I, I went to the hui that the victims' chief victim's advisor ran. And I came away from that two-day event feeling in my heart there was actually really a chance for change here because these victims of very serious crimes were also calling for a system that was more healing and more restorative. So I think, go back to your question, what do we do in response to that? I think we, we've got to hit it from you know, ground up and top down. We, we've got to, uh, in our communities at the coalface, we've got to commit to using alternative methods and trying to understand what these methods have to offer and allow a kind of groundswell. And in fact, you know, in terms of the New Zealand restorative justice story, one of the reasons why, in many ways, we have led the world in this stuff is because of the grassroots support for it. So we, we need to keep working at the grassroots. At the same time, we also need to work at the, um, at the PR level and at the policy level and, um, and, and point to the evidence that, that there is for alternative ways of working. The story is often told of one of the Scandinavian countries, I can never remember which one it was, whether it was Finland or Norway or one of those countries. in the 1960s was deeply ashamed of the fact that its criminal justice uh, statistics were worse than their neighbours. You know, the Scandinavian countries like to compare themselves to each other as we do to to our neighbours. And they thought this is terrible. We've got to do something about it. And so they they began a reform process. And the two things that they did that helped them to achieve significant reform, you know, the the, the rates of imprisonment fell, you know, by, by at least a half, if not two thirds and they've stayed low, two things they did was they got an agreement from the politicians not to politicise the issue, not to use it as, you know, as election fodder. And secondly, the press agreed not to sensationalise particular crimes. And that lowered the level of public anxiety about this. And, you know, the Scandinavians, we're seeing this at the moment, with the COVID stuff, they, they really want to trust the experts. And so they said, well, you know, Politicians don't know anything about criminal justice. Let's leave it to those who do know about it. Um, we would never run our economy by, you know, doing popular polls about things. We, we leave it to those who understand how it works. And so if we could get a cross-party agreement on reform, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. It's been resisted in the past by parties on the, on the centre-right. But if we could, that would make a huge difference if we if we if we get the the press to stop, you know, if it bleeds it leads kind of approach. And um, overly dramatising everything, that would help as well. So I guess
0: as we as we close, is there anything last thing you'd like to say to someone maybe who's still really wrestling with this, you know? They've heard our sort of episode in the past where we talked about prisons and some of the problems with the system. They're sort of hearing what your you're quoted or here but it, you know, they're still quite not there. You know, this is quite foreign. What, what last words would you like to leave with them?
2: Well, you know, the thing that we find that makes the biggest difference is for people to personally experience the power of this kinds of process. And you'll see the most hardened cynics start to have second thoughts when they realize that a restorative process, a you know, well-run restorative process, can actually produce quite significant changes. So, I think for those who are you know, left questioning and a bit unsure, if there were, were ways in which they could meet or get in contact with people who work in this space and you know and, and have some sort of exposure to to the practice and even to the even to the theory, I, I think it would make a difference because it is a really hopeful thing. Mm-hmm. I think many of us, when it comes to the big the big political questions do feel a lot of despair about the chance of things being any different. But this I think that there are alternatives. They do work. And they work not only in cases of severe harm, but also in cases of interpersonal conflict. Uh, they work in terms of group, you know, community building, decision-making processes. Uh, the, the principles are you know, almost endless in their application. And I think if people could you know, expose themselves more to this and, and, and try and, and work and, and learn to live more restoratively, I, I think that would be, make the biggest difference.
0: Awesome. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's been awesome having you. We really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks, mate. Thank bye bye. Man, so a lot of really good stuff in, in that episode. Really value Chris's input into this conversation i think it's a lot a lot to offer obviously how do you feel about that Dale? i mean i know this is something you've been wrestling with as we've been having these conversations around like centering the victims and what they need and making sure that they're not sort of getting neglected through you know a focus on what the person who's done harm is getting as well like how do you what are you sort of feeling coming out of that
1: I'm still still back and forth uh, all the time constantly I mean after listening to that times when I'm leaning very much towards restorative justice and other times it's just constantly arguing with myself but I mean I can definitely agree uh, with what he said with Saudi repair the harm so that you know all parties involved as well as the wider community can benefit from it I keep trying to put my my head inside the head of the victim mm-hmm. How they can still feel that justice is served. I I guess it, again I'm falling into the punitive, you know, something that I've have believed in for a long time. Mm. So, yeah, I just I really struggle to to pull away from it.
2: Mm.
0: What what do you think's the the big anchor there for you? Like, what's the hardest thing?
1: I guess it's that we can't remove the harm away from the victim. Mm. You know what I mean? It's always yeah. going to be there. In a sense that kind of makes me also lean towards restorative justice because nothing we can do is gonna remove the harm mm. that's fallen upon the victim. You know, whatever punishment we deal out, that harm still happened. Mm. He did say that he's seen it work, sort of a heavier context, but yeah, it's something I still struggle with.
0: Yeah, I and I get that, eh? Like it's I mean and and he said that. That the research seems to show that in the heavier context is where it seems to be the most powerful i think it's main, like the big thing he was really trying to emphasize through that whole conversation is this has to be a voluntary process yeah like you can't force someone who's been harmed to sit in the same room as someone who's done that harm unless they're ready to make that step and what mm. i understand of restorative justice is there's a lot of work that goes into getting people to the right space where they might be ready and it's something like that you offer them. It's not something that you do to them. Yeah. And I think they're saying, because he was saying that restorative justice is primarily around the victim first. It's yeah. about centering their voice and trying to understand what can bring healing and restoration for them because they're the only ones that know that. But a justice system built of restorative principles will ask different questions mm. than the punitive retributive system that we have right now. And, um, I guess that's the challenge. Like if we were going to have a system that was built off those principles of restorative justice, then it would change everything we did and, and, and how we approach that question of crime and punishment and, and justice and what that all means.
1: You have worked and you, you, mean you still work with people who are homeless, right? People who are yeah. experiencing probably first hand. So do you, I mean, do you see, I guess, a higher trend towards offending?
0: Yeah, we definitely see that people within the, I guess, the community that I, I sort of support are more involved in the criminal justice system. Um, mm. But when we, when we unpack some of those crimes, like, a lot of the, the criminal activity is, is often crimes of desperation. It's, you know, young people that are in vulnerable situations, and they're sort of just trying to survive. And often you take people, I mean, we spoke about this before, like people that have been really harmed and excluded from society and traumatized in their past, and then they're just living out of the cycle of trauma. So it's not necessarily that they're bad people doing bad things, but that they're in the system which is just, you know, they've got no support, they're just not in a good space, they're not healthy. Like I often think that human beings, when they're healthy, when they're loved, when they're cared for, when they have the basic needs that they need to survive, most people don't commit the sort of real terrible crimes that we see. Yet when people have been robbed of their own humanity and been dehumanized and abused and left to you know live on the street like an animal been I mean, treated like an animal by society then they often will act in ways which are very subhuman that is not to say that they are but it's that something of their humanity has been damaged and there's healing that is needed but those same people when they receive love care support stability when they when they're given they're given the privilege the right of being able to be housed um to be fed to be clothed to be looked after that image you know i I guess the language i have around this is definitely from my christian tradition around the imago which is the image of god and we believe that we are all image bearers that all of us bear the image of the divine and i don't think that is that goes away but when someone has been harmed to the point that i've seen people harmed, they do atrocious things sometimes. But when you create a space where they can be loved, that that image is healed and and recovered within them. I guess this is, and we've spoken about this, but my great frustration is when we judge these people and we don't understand them or know what's going on. And even more so than when we create a system which does harm to people, and then we punish them for reacting or or living out the harm that they have had experienced or had done to them. I, I think another thing that he talked about is that what's happening with the system, it's harming all of us. And this is the thing that that I think we need to get in tune with is that inequality is bad for every one of us. But this the system is not helping anyone in that the punitive revenge-based system that we have, it does harm to everyone involved in it, even the prison officers who are sort of in that system and having to act in those certain ways to Mm. do their jobs, you know? It harms our communities when you take someone out of your community, when your dad or your mum or your sister is taken out from your community. That does damage to our community. It harms our victims because they're not healing and they're not recovering. And they actually, when you ask victims, are you satisfied with the justice system we have? They say no. You know, no one's satisfied with the justice system we have. And all the research that we have and all that we know about harder and more punitive punishments is is that actually it doesn't satisfy the needs of the victims anymore. And all it does is create more victims because we continue to do harm to people. We continue to churn them through a system which damages them. We chuck them back into the community. They're still in the same space they're in. They create more victims and it's just a circle we keep going around. As long as we have a system built off the principles of revenge, we will continue to have victims and we will continue to be damaging our communities.
1: Mm. I was really shocked by what he said with Maori people being the most incarcerated race in the world. Yeah. That was nuts.
0: Yeah. I loved how he answered that question, by the way. Like just, it's not because Maori are worse people than anyone else. Yes, There is interesting equality in this nation that we have not addressed.
1: Yeah. And like you mentioned, it's a trend with indigenous people. Mm. So clearly there's something there, you know,
0: yeah, this thing
1: called Something colonization,
0: I don't, I don't know, maybe we should explore that one day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh gosh, that's a... Oh. I, that what, conversation what is a, always a hexagon. <laughs>
0: that's, a, that's a deep, we'll, we'll have to go there. But um, one of the other things I think he, he addressed quite well was this whole, I guess there's quite some strong narratives about law and order and punishment and crime, which are developing at the moment and gaining, I mean, they're not developing, they're there. As the government has tried to reform the system, there's been some really strong voices advocating for law and order. And we're coming up to an election, and those voices are coming up again. For me, it's disappointing to see that there are strong voices within the Christian community trying to advocate for this punitive, revenge-based system, as Mm. well as uh, ministers within the government who are also trying to advocate for this system, alongside, obviously, Labour who are trying to reform it. And that's something that really frustrates me and that we have once again going back to we have people that are removed from what's actually happening for people in our community trying to set the narrative for what we need in order to move forward yeah. whereas like my experience is that a lot of people on the front lines working in this not just i mean chris mentioned police officers who are doing some great work that's my experience as well there's some really great police officers who are trying to work around the system there's great prison officers trying to work around the system parole officers trying to work around the system It's not working for anyone. We're recognizing this. Yet we have leaders that keep giving us punitive, revenge-based policy. Why? Because apparently we gobble it up and we love it. You know, throw someone Mm. in jail for another (laughs) 50 years and I'll give you my vote. Until we send a message to our politicians, to our leaders that, hey, this is not what we want. We're going to keep having this. And that's what he sort of spoke to at the end. We need unity. We need to to gather together and, and speak with one voice as a people and say, we want something different
1: what started me down the path of I guess thinking in a restorative way what stops me from leaning towards a restorative way is always those heavier crime but funny enough what also started me on that journey and thinking away was it's kind of the same thing that's pushing me away thinking about this was the story of this one he was a serial killer who had done some horrific things horrific things in a short amount of time and I'd I'd watched his little documentary and a while later I saw another documentary and it was about the same guy and what he went through as a child and yeah just highlighted what he went through throughout his life and i thought damn like man it doesn't excuse what he did but you can see how he ended up the way he did and that and that kind of trickled down then sort of to those lower end things where you realize people can end up in all sorts of situation due to things that they went through when they were kids or things they are currently experiencing you make yeah decisions that the average person wouldn't make because You haven't really grown up in that Mm -hmm. environment. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who grow up in, I mean, my father, for example, grew up in a pretty rough area, extreme poverty. You know, he's come through that pretty well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, he's got family who hasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's so many different reasons for that, you know, so many different reasons that someone growing up through the same situation, relatively the same situation, can have two different outcomes. I mean, it's not always just because of great decisions they've made. I mean it could be friends' influence in that area, all those kind of things play into it. Mm-hmm. Pretty huge. Right
0: like for me, restorative justice is about, like, I guess, what's really deep and obviously my experience, like from one side of seeing restorative principles work in terms of how we work with people and seeing the healing and transformation that can happen to people when you work in that way. But you know, my experience of the divine and um, of my faith as well as is a big part of why I sort of believe in this is and Chris spoke about that in sort of his study of the scriptures and his own faith as well is that you know I see in the scriptures a, a story of a of a God who loves humanity so much that he's working towards restoration and healing and redemption for the hurting. And that is the narrative that really governs my life. So much of life is about fundamentally love. It's about loving one another. It's about loving each other, regardless of who we are or what we've done, and that love actually truly does have the power to transform and heal. And I'm, I'm not talking about something that's soft and fluffy, but true, real love, which sticks by people in the hard stuff. It doesn't turn a blind eye to the to the harm and the hurt that is in people's lives. But it says, "I see you, I see that. I'm walking alongside you, either way." Yeah, I, I've seen it work. You know, I, I've seen people that have done some of the worst stuff in this life. And when we've journeyed alongside them, I've seen the healing and redemption that comes. It, it's real. We yeah. have to have the courage and the strength to stand by it, though, and stand by those principles because it's messy. And healing mm. and redemption doesn't happen in a day. It's a journey, it's a lifetime. Yeah, it can take a long time. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's a big conversation, eh? Man.
1: <laughs> Even though, just just going back and forth in my head. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, this is a this is a big journey. And I, I want to acknowledge, man, it's hard. This is tough stuff, right? This is about people's lives. This is about things that really touch people. And some of our audience, some of you, some of our whanau, like you may have experienced some real rough stuff in your life. And this may be say, really hard. And, and we want to acknowledge that this is not an mm. easy conversation. And it's not something that should be taken lightly. But we want to invite you into that conversation. And we're going to keep talking about this sort of stuff over... The next few weeks and um, yeah we'd love to hear your feedback let us know what you're thinking what you're feeling what challenges you and maybe parts of the conversation you think we're missing but anyway thank you so much for all of those who have joined us today we really appreciate you hanging out with us and getting involved in these tough conversations if you're enjoying the show really encourage you to rate us on Apple let people know what you think and yeah we'll be back so yeah see cool.
2: of Silent, the podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you are listening and join the conversation by following us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. The music from this podcast is from the album Dissonance by Jess Jackson and Leon Shelley. Listen to more from these artists on Spotify.